on behalf of Peter and Sonia Smith, I want to just give you their greetings. We sent them off at the airport this past Thursday. I think 30 plus of Cornerstone people came out uh, to send them off um, back home to Czech Republic. And Peter and Sonia told me to tell you that their time with us, their time at our retreat, their time in fellowship and ministry was with us was the highlight of their time uh, in the States. And they returned greatly encouraged and strengthened. And uh, uh, we rejoice at the partnership that God has created uh, between our ministries and between uh, the co-laborers in Christ. And we look forward to just hearing a good report when the team comes back and tells us all the stories, especially about that thriller skit. I'm really interested. I don't know if that's going to go over too well, but it's your decision. <laughs> well, here we are in John 14. Um, six promises that cure troubled hearts. As we enter John 14, let me remind you of the key transition that took place between chapters 12 and 13. Um, chapters 1 through 12 of the Gospel of John was all the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. His focus from the get-go was the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations surrounding Israel And it was a public ministry. Starting in chapter 13 through chapter 17, we began the section of Jesus' private ministry. If you look at John 12, 36, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself from them. That was his final departure, final seclusion from the public masses. And starting in John 13... Our Lord focuses on the disciples, on the twelve disciples. John 13, He washed their feet, uh, partook of the Lord's Supper, of the uh, Passover feast, and then He established the Lord's Supper. And then we remember uh, the two valleys. He called out Judas and um, prophesied and predicted that He would betray Him. And then He turned to Peter the leader of the disciples, and he said, Peter, likewise, would deny him not once, twice, but three times. And then with that, we transition now to John 14. And from 14 through 17, Bible students have called this section the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse. Judas is gone. This wolf in sheep's clothing is gone. Our Lord is... Um, dialoguing and teaching the 11 disciples. And here we find the most intimate ministry that Christ has with the 11. It is Jesus unplugged. Jesus shares his heart, his, his soul. He teaches them personally, up close and personal with them. This is his last sermon before the crucifixion. I would say this is the original Expositors Institute. This is the first one ever. The next four chapters, in one word, is incredible. John 14, our Lord gives six promises to believers. In John 15, He tells of this new relationship that He has with Christians. I'm the vine, you're the branches. In John 16, Jesus predicts and prepares his disciples for persecution. Tells them, 
They're going to hate you. They're going to hate you because they hated me. They're going to persecute you and harm you because that is what they did to me. And then in John 17, the high priestly prayer, our Lord prays for the believers. This is what is ahead of us for the next several months, probably to about November or December. We'll be studying through these four chapters, so it's going to be an incredible time. Well, this morning, we find ourselves in John 14, and in this chapter, there is one overriding message, singular theme in this chapter. The chapter is sandwiched with, with the same words of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, and again in verse 27, Jesus says, Let your hearts not be troubled. Verse 1 and verse 27. So the whole singular theme of this chapter is our Lord is imploring. Our Lord is literally commanding the disciples, do not allow your hearts to be disturbed, to be agitated, confused, to be distressed, discouraged, to be anxious. To the point of surrendering, the point of giving up. Do not allow this. Christ commands them. Now, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, you would note that this word trouble, we've seen this word before in the Gospel of John. This, this word is terrasso, from where we get the word earthquake, to shake. Right? Christ is saying, do not let your heart shake, be moved. If you've been with us for the past several weeks or months, you say, hey, I, I remember this word. I've seen this word. Yes, we've seen this word three times in the Gospel of John thus far. In John 11:33, when Christ went to the tomb of Lazarus and he met Mary and he saw Mary weeping and grieving because of the loss of her brother, Jesus' heart was parasa. It was agitated. It was troubled. John 11:33, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. John 12:27 again. When our Lord considered the horror of the cross, of being separated from God the Father whom He loved, our Lord confessed, Now my heart is troubled. John 13, 21, the last time we saw this word, our Lord's heart was troubled in spirit, and He testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. When He considered the betrayal of Judas, His one of his own disciples, his heart was troubled. With each step of the cross, the anguish and sorrow in the heart of our Lord increased. And yet, in John 14:1, he turns to the disciples and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. What is going on here? What is the meaning of this? Our Lord's heart is filled with anguish, and yet he turns. And he tells the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Here we see an insight into our Lord's character. We see an insight into our Lord's heart. He is indeed the good shepherd. He indeed lays down his life for the sheep. His heart is breaking and yet he turns to comfort others. His exhortation is based on love, the most tender and self-forgetful character. The agonizing shepherd, as he faces the cross and his heart is melting within him, yet he turns 
to encourage and strengthen these disciples. You know, thinking about this, I said to myself, this is more difficult than washing feet. Would you agree with me? Washing feet, it's just, you know, just wash feet. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's humbling. It's difficult, yes. But what's more difficult is when your heart is breaking and full of trouble, you turn because you're a servant, not just in deed, but in heart. And you turn to those whose hearts are troubled and Christ says to them, encourages them, he shepherds them, he ministers to them. Our Lord is the epitome of a selfless shepherd. He's not a self-centered man. He's not thinking about himself. He's not telling Peter, hey, Peter, comfort me. Thomas, understand me. Bartholomew, encourage me. What about me? Everybody think about me. No. He turns his heart, eyes off of his own heart. He's unconcerned about himself. And he turns to minister to his disciples. The ultimate example of this is seen on the cross. The la- one of the last seven statements of Christ. As he's crucified, he says, and he cries out to God the Father in prayer, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What an example for us. Especially the men in this room. Especially for the husbands in this room, the fathers, the ministers. This is an example for us that Christ, when He was experiencing agony of the worst kind, the most horrendous kind, was not concerned about Himself. His prayer was for those who were persecuting Him and He prayed for them. His heart was not shaken even at the cross. And here in John 14, He turns to these 11 men and he commands them, let not your hearts be troubled. Now the question is, what trouble is our Lord referring to? What is troubling the heart of these disciples? I mean, we know, we're old enough to know that trouble is common to all men's hearts at all times. Would you not agree that life is one problem after another. Life is but a series of troubles. One trouble after another. Job 5.7, Job said, As sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. Job 14.1, A man's days are few, but those few days are filled with problems. Filled with anxieties, distresses, and difficulties. Common to all men. J.C. Rowell said heart trouble is the commonest thing in all the world. No rank, class, or condition is exempt from it. No bars, bolts, or locks can keep trouble out. Everyone must drink many bitter cups of trouble in this world. What troubles are ailing the heart of the 11 men in this room? Our Lord is not speaking of the generic troubles that affect people's hearts. He is speaking of unique difficulties, unique burdens that assail and oppress the hearts of believers. There are unique troubles that are assigned for Christians, special troubles that plague only the righteous. Now, what are they? From... The previous text, we discover three unique causes, sources that, of, of trouble 
in the heart of believers. Three unique sources of trouble in the heart of believers. First cause of trouble is, is being left behind. First cause of trouble is the physical absence of Christ. Christ said throughout His ministry that He's going and that they can't follow Him. In John 7.33, John 8.21, He told the Jews, I'm going, where I'm going, you cannot come. Every time Jesus said this, whether in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the disciples were disturbed. Jesus, why are you talking this way? We want to be with you forever. Stop talking about you going away. He addressed that to the Jews, but here in John 14, or John 13, 33, He told the disciples, little children, I am with you for a little while longer, but after this, you will seek Me, and where I am going, you cannot come. And this broke the heart of the disciples. I mean, this discouraged them. Why? Where are you going? Why can't we follow you? In fact, look at John 13, 36. Simon, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Peter said to him, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I mean, you've got to love Peter's heart, right? Why can't I follow you now why do you have to leave us I want to be with you I want to sit at your side forever please don't forsake us please don't leave us as orphans I want to be with you that is the longing of all true Christians is it not that is the heart of all believers that we want to be with Christ why because we love Christ Thomas Vincent, a Puritan pastor, wrote, It is the nature of love to desire to be with the object loved, with the object that is loved. The Christian soul sweetly rests and rejoices in his presence and love. This longing, this love belongs only to Christians. The world does not love and long for Christ, not because Jesus lacks beauty and loveliness. No, it is because they are blind. Faith has opened the eyes of those who were once also blind. Now all believers clearly apprehend for themselves the pure beauty and attractiveness of Christ and therefore are irresistibly drawn to Him. End quote. Believers love Christ because we see, our eyes have been opened, we see the beauty of Christ. His, His presence gives us immeasurable joy and encouragement, and we desire to be with Him. And when Christ said, you cannot be with me, it caused all of them so much trouble. That's why I understand John, John 21. Remember, they're on the Sea of Galilee, and Peter was in the boat, and John says, that's the Lord on the shore. And what does Peter do? He takes his garment, he puts his garment on, and he jumps in the water. And he begins to swim towards Jesus. Why? Because Christians want to be with Christ. Paul said to Philippians 1, For to me to live is Christ and to die is better. I am hard pressed between life and death. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. That is far better. Do we not have those moments of trial and temptation where we have to face another day apart from Christ? Do we not long for heaven? Why do we long for heaven? It's because Christ is there. 
If Christ is not in heaven, that's not heaven. Do we not long for Christ, His presence? Do we not get dejected because we are physically separated from the Lord? That's the first cause of trouble. The second cause of trouble in the heart of believers is the failure of other believers. Failure of other Christians. John 13 and 14 are directly connected. There is no transition. There is no pause between the end of John 13 and the beginning of 14. The same room, same dialogue, same thought. So Jesus just predicted, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then he says, do not let your hearts. He said, you will deny me singular, and then do not let your hearts be troubled. Disciples were discouraged, not just by the thought of Jesus leaving them, but also by the truth that not only Judas, but Peter, the leader of the group, the rock, the main spokesperson, he will indeed fall away and deny the Lord three times. Without a doubt, this news caused their hearts to sink, caused their hearts to melt. This is a unique source of sorrow in the heart of believers. Unbelievers have no idea, no understanding of this sorrow. This is a unique source of sorrow for believers. When we hear or see sin in fellow Christians, seeing other believers stray away from Christ, seeing firsthand quote-unquote mature believers or leaders or even hearing about pastors, denying the faith and compromising and falling away. When we see believers make decisions that make it clear that their priority is not Christ, when Christians wander away from loving Christ and begin to love this world, the source of much trouble. I'll confess, number two gets me. The source of much sadness in my life is this. When I see and hear believers that I believed in, Christians that I trusted. You know what, Paul, uh, what Bob was saying? Christians that I boasted about. That I, that I was proud of. Fall away in sin. The source of great trouble in my heart. Why? Because, because we love Christ. Christians love Christians. And nothing pains Christians more then when we find out that a fellow Christian is no longer following Christ. Third John, verse 3, this is what John says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, that you are indeed walking in the truth. And then he says, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Apostle John says, there's no greater joy in his life than when he hears that believers, his children, are walking in the truth. Well, since that is true, then it follows that the opposite must be true. If there is no greater joy in life than to hear that believers are walking in the truth, then it follows, obviously, that there is no greater pain in life. There is no greater grief or sorrow or anguish in life than when we hear that believers are no longer following Christ. 1 Thessalonians 3. If you would turn there, 1 Thessalonians 3. 
We want to look at two passages from the letters of Paul. First is First Thessalonians, and then we'll turn to Second Corinthians. Paul shared the same heart. First Thessalonians three, verse five. He he wondered how the Thessalonian believers were doing. He said, "When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear." He was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 6, But now Timothy has come to us from you and he has brought good news of your faith and love and you report that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. Go down to verse 8. Therefore, now we live. And ESV has if. I think NIV has EF as well, I don't know about the NAS, but that's a wrong translation. It's, for now we live since you are standing fast in the Lord. Because you are following Christ, Paul says, I am now alive. I am, we are living. Paul experienced the heights of joy of hearing that believers are standing fast in the Lord. But Apostle Paul also experienced the valleys of despair when he heard a believer straying from the Good Shepherd. These valleys are so low, brothers and sisters. If you're discouraged, this might encourage you actually. This is such a source of pain that it brought Apostle Paul, even the great Apostle Paul, to his knees. I mean, it, I mean this was so painful that even Apostle Paul for a moment, not permanently, but for a moment, he, he, when he gave up in ministry. Second Corinthians 2.13 Paul is in Troas. He had written 1 Corinthians, rebuking the church. For a while he regretted it because it was harsh. He didn't know how they would respond. So he's in Troas waiting for Titus, waiting for news from him on how the Corinthian believers are doing. He is anxious in his heart. He fears that the believers at Corinth are unrepentant, unmoved in their sins. His heart is so troubled, verse 13, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord... My spirit was not at rest because of his concern for the believers at Corinth. His heart was so troubled. My heart was not at rest that I did not, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Read that again. There was an open door for the gospel. And what does Paul, the great giant of the faith, what does he do? He leaves. Leaves the door wide open. He turns back. He cowers away. He retreats. This doesn't tell me that Paul is a weak believer. This tells me how much grief is caused by sinning Christians. I mean, he told the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Right? He said, Curse be upon me if I don't preach the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.13, what does he do? He doesn't preach the gospel. What Dale read, he asked church at Colossae, Colossae 4 verse 3, pray for me for an open door for the gospel. Well, God answers prayer as an open door for the gospel. What does he do? He does not go in. 
he turns away. He is so discouraged by the unfaithful believers at Corinth that he leaves behind a wide open door for the gospel. Tells us that the burden and discouragement given by unfaithful believers is indeed crippling. It is paralyzing. What about you this morning? In your heart, do you care for fellow Christians? Do you care? What is your highest joy? Is your highest joy in life spiritual well-being of fellow Christians? Or is it something else? What is your greatest sadness and sorrow? Is it related to how other believers are doing? In your relationship with fellow believers, are you interested in your brother's walk? And how a sister is doing in their struggle against sin? How they're doing in their time of word and prayer? Do you see each other first and foremost as Christians first, before every category, before any category? Let me, let me talk about this for a little bit. I, I talked this with my wife. I got permission from her you know, whenever I use my wife. I can't get Elizabeth's permission, but I'll get permission in the future. But whenever I use Serena in an illustration, I, I got her permission. You know, my wife, some believers approach her and they, all they want to talk about is diapers. Right? All they want to talk about is pregnancy, morning sickness, noon sickness, and evening sickness. And talk about Elizabeth and her, her hair and what her personality. And that's fine. That's fine. That's all they want to talk about because for them, she's a mom. Christians is second or third or fourth, but really they're concerned that she's a mom. So that's their conversation. I mean, it tells, tells me that they're not caring for my wife as a Christian. They don't rejoice when she's doing well. They're not mourning when she's not doing well. Other believers approach my wife and they ask her, yeah, Elizabeth, it's important, you know, and pregnancy, yeah, baby's coming in a month and a half, great, but... Let's talk about what is truly important. Let's talk about things that are eternal. How are you doing in your prayer life? Let's talk about the category that really matters. How is your fight against sin? Are you learning in the Lord? What is God? What is the Holy Spirit teaching you? That is a true, that is a, that is a good concern. That is the right concern. As exemplified by Christ and the Apostles. Well, first reason for troubled hearts is Christ leaving. Second reason for troubled hearts is the failure of other believers. The third reason for troubled hearts, and you would agree, this is the greatest reason for trouble. More than the physical absence of Christ, more than other Christians failing, hands down, this is the greatest reason for sorrow in believers' hearts. Our own failings our own failures, our own sins, our own, our own hearts that stray away from Christ. Can you imagine the, the horror that filled Peter's heart when he heard Christ point at him and say, Peter, you will disown me three times. Imagine, it's unimaginable what Peter thought to himself. And then, not only it's heard, but he experienced it. I mean, it, it happened. 
right? I mean, Luke 22, Peter did not, before the rooster crows, he denied him three times. And Luke 22, 61, it says, that as soon as Peter denied the Lord the third time, and the rooster crowed, Peter looked across the courtyard, and Jesus looked at him, and their eyes met. They saw each other. And then it says, Luke 22, you can look it up, Peter remembered the words of Christ. And then he went outside by himself, and he wept bitterly. The trouble that must have been flooding Peter's heart that night when he confronted his own sins, his own failures. I've said this before and I'll say it again. I've, I've met Christ in the courtyard of my own denials. Surrounded by my own repeated failures as a believer. I've been there. I've met Christ and I've remembered His words. And this for me is by far the greatest source of trouble in my heart. My pride, my selfishness, my self-confidence, my greed. I can go on and on. You know, we can go on until the second hour talking about my sins. seems that as my vision of Christ becomes clearer and clearer, and as I grow in my faith, my understanding of my own sins increases all the more. My sinfulness is all the more magnified. It seems that there's like layers and layers and layers of, of my sinfulness is revealed as I draw near to the Lord. Someone asked me this week, James, do you ever question your calling as a pastor? My response was, question my calling as a pastor? I often question my salvation. Let alone question my calling as a pastor. I mean, the question is, at times my heart is so cold to the word, and my times my heart is so filled with the sin and pride and, and, and self-will and, and, and and vain glory, I ask myself, am I a Christian? Am I truly called? I have good company because that's what Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, I beat my body. I discipline my flesh. I keep it under control. Why? Lest after preaching the gospel that saves to others, I myself will be disqualified for the prize. Hadakimas. And he's not afraid of losing out on reward. He's concerned that he would be the source of the gospel of salvation to others, but he will turn out not to be a Christian. Very next chapter, chapter 10, verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Is he saying falling away from prize, a reward of crowns? No. Be careful that you don't fall away from the faith. That it is revealed that you were never a Christian in the first place. That is why he tells the church of Corinth 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Well, the disciples were deeply troubled because of these three reasons. In point of despair, Christ is leaving them, their leader is deserting Christ, and Peter's heart, his own sins. What about you this morning? What about your heart? Is your heart troubled because of finances? Is your heart grieving because of relationships or children or people at work? Then 
The Bible is not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. This message is not for you. Anyone here have grief and trouble in their hearts because of these reasons? Anyone here, heart is breaking because Christ is so far away physically? Anyone heart melting because they know right now someone who professed Christ is no longer following Christ? Believe that you believe in is no longer believing in Christ. Anyone here have a heart that is filled with sorrow and pain because you know, you're just torn because of your own sins? You can't see the sins of others through your tears because you see so clearly your own sins. Well, if there's anyone here who says yes to any one of these, I'll tell you, I have good news. I have, I have great news for you. I have the cure. I have the antidote. I have the answer. I have in John 14, six promises that Jesus makes. He says, these are sufficient for you. These promises are for your heart so that you will not quit, so that you will not give up, that you will not let go, you will persevere in your In John 14, verse 1, Christ says, Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, most English translations translate that as two imperatives, two commands. Believe in God, also believe in me. I believe that's a wrong translation. The only translation I could find that got it right is King James Version. Lord is saying, you already believe in God. You already believe that God is a God of promises. I mean, that's what Israel was all about, right? They called that land. What did they call that land? The promised land. God is a God who does not lie, who does not repent. If He said, He will keep it. He will fulfill His promises. He is a covenant-keeping God, Old and New Covenants, Testaments. The Old Testament is all about the promises of God. And Christ was saying, you already believe in the promises of God. He's now saying, He's commanding, believe in My promises. Believe now in My covenants. Believe now in my words. Believe in these six promises that I will make to you. And these promises will strengthen your heart. What are these? And we'll, we'll go through this list in the weeks to come. But, you know, as I studied John 14 this week, I, I wrote a, a note to myself. And I, I put it away. And I said to myself, when I feel alone... When Christ in heaven seems so far away, it feels like, man, this race is never going to end. When I feel like Christ is never going to come back. When I doubt, did, did, did He leave us for good? Did He just orphan us? Orphan me? When I struggle to the point of despair when I consider the failings of fellow Christians, when my own sins have so gripped my heart that I'm discouraged, I wrote a note to myself that I remember these six promises. The first promise is verse 2 and 3. And I'll just summarize. Christ promises, I'll be back. I'll be back. I'm not leaving you permanently. I promise you. I'm going. But I'm going, why? To prepare a place for you. To prepare a, a room. Right? 
for Stephanie, for Rex, for Tom, for Bob. I'm going to put these name cards on these rooms, and when I'm done, I promise, verse 2 and 3, I will return to take you to be with me forever. What a glorious promise. The second promise is in verses 4 through 11, highlighted by verse 6. I am the way to God. I am the way to the Father. This is the promise. You follow me and I will lead you to the throne. I will lead you to God the Father. I promise that. Just trust me. Follow me. Don't follow others. Follow me. Third promise is the promise of prayer, verses 12 and 14. I love this. As I leave, I give you this power to pray, to call on my name. And whatever you ask of me, for the glory of my Father, I will do it. You have my ear. My ears will be attentive to the cries of my, of my followers. Promise of answered prayer. Fourth promise is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, I do not leave you as orphans. When I go, and, if, and I, I will send to you my, the paraclete, the comforter, the helper, and he will be with you forever. We will make a home with you, a, a permanent indwelling. The Old Testament saints didn't experience this. New covenant is different. The Holy Spirit will come and be with you forever. God's love will be eternally abiding in you through the Holy Spirit. He will never leave you. No matter what sins, Peter, even you, the Lord three times, no, the Holy Spirit will not leave. The fifth promise, the promise of the Holy Scriptures, the promise of the Bible. Amen. Verse 26, the Helper, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I'll give you the Bible. I'll give you the Holy Scriptures. As a reminder of all the things that I said to you, all my promises will be written down on paper. My promises will be with you forever. And then the final promise is, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What is this peace? The promise of peace with God. The promise of salvation. And it's so appropriate that Gary's teaching on 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. That's the final verse I have in my notes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you, you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your soul. That is the peace that Christ left behind. The inexpressible joy that we have because our sins are forgiven and we are now possessors of salvation, possessors of eternal life. These are the very great and precious promises of our Lord that Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1.4. These are the promises that we will look at for the next several weeks that will strengthen embolden and cure our hearts of our sorrows, giving us strength to persevere to the end. Our Father, we do thank you for these promises. Without these promises, we would we would be overwhelmed and you would drown in our sorrows. We do not have the strength to withstand against the flood of the sorrow of you leaving us, the sorrow of seeing believers leaving Christ, the sorrow of seeing 
experiencing our own failures. But Lord, you have given these promises to us and they are sufficient for us. We close our time just remembering your first promise that you will come back. You will return. The King will come back and you will take us home to be with you forever. To dwell in the Father's house. Lord, may that day draw near when you told the Apostle John that you are returning quickly, he said, Amen, yes, Lord, come quickly. And that is our cry. Lord, come quickly. We long for that day when we will stand in your presence, we will see you face to face, and we will worship you in person forever. May that future hope abide in our hearts today, granting us strength to run this race marked out for us with perseverance. In your name we pray. Amen.